it, it is not a theological statement. In the Roman Catholic Church, in 1870, there was a teaching that was adopted called uh, Papal Infallibility. And it goes like this, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, which means from St. Peter's chair, then what he says is infallibly binding on the church. So we don't believe that. We don't believe in ongoing revelation. We believe that everything we have is in the scripture. The scripture judges everything. So uh, this is not some type of ex cathedra from the chair statement by me. The other issue is I'm not preaching because I think I'm indispensable. I know I'm very dispensable. I was told when I was indispensable when I graduated from college, and the Celtics and Lakers both did not draft me in the NBA. But I wanted to be here today for two two reasons, for a number of reasons. But one is we had an infant dedication in the last service. I love those. And secondly, we're honoring our high school seniors today. And many of those high school seniors I have had the privilege of seeing raised really from birth. That is such a joy and such a privilege. So thank you for that. But we are back in the book of Colossians. We've been studying Colossians. And as I told you on numerous occasions, I've just started the first 23 verses of chapter 1. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church he had never seen. Uh, It's a church that he had uh, heard good reports about, and he's he's writing them to encourage them to walk in the way of the Lord. And so in the first chapter, he's gone through this uh, beautiful statement, opening statement, then verses 9 to 14, a general prayer, and then verses 15 to 20, he launches into a hymn about the supremacy and the greatness and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And then on the heels of that, he talks about who these Colossians were in Christ and how they were complete in Christ. So listen to verses 21 to 23. He begins this new section by saying, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You were dead, you were doing evil deeds, alienated, But he's reconciled you in his body of flesh by death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. He says, you know, you're you're in Christ. You're complete. You're in him. Uh, This is who you are. And then he begins a new section. And he starts off with one of the greatest statements and the most puzzling statements and the most mind-boggling statements in all the Bible. This is what he says. Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, off which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles 
are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What a statement. It says it's become fully known now because of the reality of Christ and the preaching of the gospel. But he starts off by saying this, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, these words regarding sufferings. The first two verses, he says that we are justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character. Rejoice in sufferings. James chapter 1 says this, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you are buffeted about by trials of many kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And I step back and I go, rejoice in suffering. How in the world can we say rejoice in suffering? If you say to someone who believes in a God that is undefinable and he's a great creator God, but he's not really involved in our lives, can you rejoice in sufferings? They'll say, oh, sufferings has, has no purpose in your life. If you say to a secularist, can we rejoice in sufferings? The secularist would say, there's, there's, there's no point to it. It's just life is difficult and hard. And it's a bitter pill to swallow. Or some people will have come up with little aphorisms like, when life gives you lemons, what? Make lemonade, whatever that means. Or when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. Yeah. Or tip a canoe in Tyler too, whatever that means, I don't know. But, but you know, you, you, you hear these things and you step back and you say, how, how can we say, Rejoice in suffering. I'm going to give you four reasons we can rejoice in suffering. The first is this. The living God is our Abba Father, and He is good, and He loves us. Now, in this room, we just sang a hymn a few minutes ago where part of the hymn says, Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. In this passage that we discussed the last few weeks, Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, the hairs upon your head are numbered. God watches over you. He is glorious and he is good. Uh, old catechism, first question is, what is your only hope in life and death? Answer, my only hope in life and death is that I am not belong, but I belong to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his shed blood has satisfied all the requirements for my sin, and not a hair can fall from my head without my heavenly Father's knowledge. So, one reason we can rejoice in suffering is because God wastes nothing, and God watches over us. God has numbered the hair upon our head. It's an incredibly comforting thought. There's a book entitled Awe that we've discussed as a church a couple of years ago by a guy named Tripp, and he has five questions that still 
or seal your joy? Number one, is God good? If yes, keep on going. Is God in control or, or will God do what will be promised in his scripture? Yes. Number three, is God in control of my everyday events? The Bible says unequivocally, yes. Number four, does God have the needed power to impact my life? Yes. Number five, does God care about me? Yes. I mean, if you're in Christ and you see the cross, you, you say that. Uh, this is a book of letters uh, by a guy named John Calvin. It's one of three books of letters. So I, I bring this in here to read to you, but also just, just in a side note, um, Calvin had a friend named William Farrell, and he got a letter from William Farrell, and he says to William Farrell, I have set apart today to answer your concerns with a letter. The whole day. And it was 12 pages of this type of stuff. It was well thought through letter. And I, just as an aside, write letters. Okay, write letters. It doesn't have to be 12 pages. Nobody wants to, wants to read a 12-page letter. No, nobody does. But, but think through issues and write letters to bless your friends and your children and your grandchildren and your contemporaries. What we have is we have Twitter and texts. And Twitter's 123 characters or less. Is that right? 123? Is that right? 123? 100, what is it? 100, 100, okay, 108? I don't know, 80, 80 or less. It's getting shorter and shorter as I sit here. But anyway, we, we, but, so, so Calvin is writing this letter Brief background. Uh, Calvin comes to faith in Christ in his early 20s. Um, becomes a great student of scripture, immersed in good theology, known as an incredibly bright man. And just a few years after he's converted, he's going through a city called Geneva, Switzerland. And there's a big guy with flaming red hair and a big red beard named William Farrell. And William Farrell needs a real a resident theologian to help him build the church in Geneva. And so he meets Calvin on the road and says, he says, Brother Calvin, you need to stay in Geneva. He says, no, I'm not going to Geneva. And he says, if you do not stay in Geneva, God will curse you for the rest of your days. And uh, that, that's not a good way to persuade people to do things. But Calvin said, I better stay. So, so he stays in Geneva for the first time for three years as a kind of a pastor. And the church is filled with disharmony, immorality. There was uh, wife swapping going on, just ridiculous stuff going on. And Calvin labored and prayed and labored and they didn't like him and didn't receive him and threatened his life and stood outside with muskets firing it into the air things that you've never done to me, thankfully. And so after three years, uh, they fire him, and he leaves with great joy. And he goes to Strasbourg, France, and he's in Strasbourg for three years, and he's in the second year of his three years tenor. And, and, and he's happy, 
He says, I'm the resident theologian, not the pastor. I don't have to deal with people. And so Farrell writes him a letter and he says, Brother Calvin, you need to consider coming back to Geneva if the city council calls you. And Calvin writes this letter. This is what he says. Your letter filled me with perplexity and trouble of mind and threw me for two days into despair. Whenever I call to mind the state of the wretchedness in which my life was spent in Geneva, how can it be otherwise that, but that my very soul should shudder when any proposal is made to return to that city? Listen, I know indeed from experience that wheresoever I might turn, all sorts of annoyances were strewn in my way that I would live to Christ and this world must be to me a scene of trial and vexation. The present life is appointed as to a field of conflict. Brother Pharaoh, you yourself along with God are my best witness that no lesser tie would have been sufficient to retain me there so long as it had not been that I dared not throw off the yoke of my calling. I want you to see that. I dare not throw off the yoke of my calling, which I was well assured had been laid upon me by the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's my thesis. Every child of God is yoked under Christ. Every child of God has a calling to a work. If you're married, a marriage to parenting, if you have children, to relationships, to covenantal concerns in the body of Christ. We are all under the yoke. And if, if I believe that all things work together for good and that God is working in my life and he's called me to himself, it gives me a sense of rejoicing in difficult times. Every person here goes through difficult times. Either you're in a conflict, coming out of a conflict, or going into a conflict. Life is difficult. But I can rejoice if I believe that God is Abba Father and he loves me and that my calling comes from him. Number two, I can rejoice. If, if I understand there is a real true nobility in life that comes in following Christ. I'm mesmerized by Acts chapter five. In Acts chapter five, in the early church, the apostles are threatened and beaten and it says this in verse 40. It's in their worship guide. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I go, wow. They, they rejoiced. Rejoice, there's that word again, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And it, 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 there is a nobility and a higher purpose that comes in understanding that I belong to the living Christ and what I do really does count. So here are these fishermen who were beaten and they said, we rejoice that we're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. There is a higher call. It fills you with nobility. You don't live just for what you see. You don't live for some passing fancy or some You live for that which is eternal. If you're a believer, you're called to eternal things. And so you can rejoice in your sufferings because there's a nobility in your life. Now, I love the citadel. 
I, I went to Citadel. I, I met Christ at the Citadel. I met wonderful people there. I, I, I was nurtured and loved and received a good education at the Citadel. My son went to the Citadel. My son-in-law went to the Citadel. And I, I like the Citadel. And we're going to have some high school seniors coming down the aisle after a while. And um, most of them have chosen not to go to the Citadel. But it's, it's never too late, you know. I think we can get you in, you know. Um, so, so my school has an alma mater, like every school has an alma mater. We sing our alma mater at the end of our football games. And as alma maters go, it's not too bad. You know, some alma maters are kind of silly, but this, this is not too bad. And let me give you part of the lyrics. Uh, o Citadel, I, I sing thy fame for all the world to hear. And in the paths our, fa our fathers taught us, follow without fears. Peace and honor, God and country. We will fight for thee. O citadel, we praise thee now and in eternity. It's pretty good. Pretty good. But I've got to tell you that every time I sing it, I kind of giggle when I get to the last line. We praise thee now and in eternity. And I've thought this several times. I die and go to heaven. And we know that heaven is glorious beyond words. We know that heaven is a place of endless feasting and accomplishments and friendship and beauty and startling things that cannot begin to fill our little brains right now. And so you get to heaven and there's this lavish feast and you're celebrating and rejoicing. No more sin. It's just good. And so they said, we're going to have a praise gathering. And you look up and there before you and the glorious display is the person of Jesus with nail prints in his hands, spear wound in his side, the glory of Jesus. And, and you say, B -b 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 before we start, let me just say one thing. Go Bulldogs. I don't think so. I really do not think so. And, and I, I'm thinking, you know, I, I love my school and I love winning. And, but Lord, may those things that are eternal grab my heart and be reflected in my life. See, I can rejoice in my suffering because there is a nobility to which I have been called. Um, this verse puzzles me and let me just read it. Hebrews 12, 2. Uh, Look into Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I'm going, for the joy set before him endured the cross. I don't understand that. Except this, there is a nobility in doing what the Father calls you to do. And we've been called to that nobility. Um, 
Many of us are familiar with the name Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch woman who was part of a godly family in the Netherlands. And when the Nazis came to power and seized the Netherlands and started rounding up the Jews, they housed Jews in a secret compartment in their house and secreted them out of the country and got them to safety and gave them money and gave them food and put their lives on the line. And they did that for four years. In 1944, a friend turned them into the Nazis and the Nazis stormed their house and arrested the, the Ten Boom family and several of their accomplices. I mean, there were 30 people that were arrested, um, including Corey Ten Boom and her father and her older sister, Bessie. And after they were taken off, they received a coded letter two weeks later that says, all the watches in your cabinet have been delivered safely, which was, there, there were six Jews in hiding that the Nazis didn't find. They're saying they're all in Switzerland. They're all doing well. So the, the Tin Booms, um, the two girls, two young women or older women, were sentenced to go to Ravensbrück. Ravensbrück was a Nazi concentration camp 60 miles north of Berlin, only for women. There were 130,000 women who matriculated at Ravensbrück and 3,200 survived. Gas chambers, deprivation. As Corey Ten Boom and her sister Bessie were entering into Ravensbrück, they linked arms and as they went in, they sang this hymn. Lead on, O kindly light, amidst the circling gloom. Lead thou me on, Lord Christ. The night is dark and I am far from home. Keep thou me on. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene, but only one step enough for me. Lead on, O kindly light. So in 1944, just a few months before the war was over, 59-year-old Bessie was put to death. A week later, Corey Ten Boom was released. We don't know why, except later we found out it was because of a clerical error. And she lived to represent Christ for many years. But I thought of, of, of the dignity that is ours because we represent Christ. This is a side note, this is a side note. In this last political campaign with all the issues going on, it has been a great sorrow to me to hear what people are saying. Uh, and, and this week, I was, quite honestly, I was absolutely um, devastated by Stephen Colbert's statement. If you haven't heard about it, don't. He said some horrible things on CBS late night in a recorded session that CBS chose to air, which is beyond imagination. Um, and Stephen Colbert is incredibly gifted and very funny. But what he said was, was despicable. And then I said to myself, I said, self, be very careful how you speak. And I read this, this is by Henry James. Henry James was a favorite novel, famous novelist of the 19th century. His brother was William James, the father of psychology, who taught at Harvard for four, four decades. He, he said, all of life comes back to the question of our speech. The medium 
through which we communicate with each other. For all life comes back to the question of our relations with each other and our speech. And I thought, God, may I speak well? And I thought of 1 Peter that says, whoever speaks, let him speak as if it were the utterances of God. Or Colossians 4 that says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt. Or, or I thought of Ephesians 4 that says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up. And I thought, Lord, in, in an age that, that embraces and applauds despicable speech, uh, may we speak as noble-minded people called into fellowship with the triune God by the blood of the cross. So we can rejoice because of, of the nobility of our calling. Number three, we can rejoice because the, the, the treasure of the coming ages surpasses anything we have today. Hebrews chapter 10 says this. No, this is Hebrews 10. This is it. Hebrews 10, 34. For, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you publicly accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's an amazing verse. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because of the hope of heaven. And I thought, God, give me the taste of heaven. Or Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, speaking to Moses, it says that choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. See, I, I can rejoice in my suffering. You can rejoice in your suffering. Our brothers and sisters in Iraq and Libya and Algeria and Afghanistan, the persecuted church, can rejoice in their sufferings because this life is but a passing reality. The glories await. And there's a quote in the bullet from this guy named Jonathan Edwards. I like Jonathan Edwards. And he says this. He, he says that he says, everything we have here, the greatest joys here are nothing compared to the joys of heaven. The heaven is infinitely better, infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. And one of the things that I really pray for pray, is that I want to understand the glories and the joy and the purpose and the grandeur of heaven. See, I can rejoice because heaven, heaven awaits. I can rejoice because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I can rejoice because incredible joy is to be ours. I saw a movie this week. I recommend it. I, I, I hate to recommend movies because sometimes you don't agree with it, but uh, I recommend this movie, Lion. True story. The story is that there's a young boy, an untouchable in India. Untouchable in the Hindu caste means that literally if an upper caste touches you, they're defiled. So, so you're a pariah. You're, you're outside the pale. You are a nobody. His, he had a loving older brother and a mom and but they lived in, 
incredible poverty, starving. So one day he and his brother are out trying to scavenge up some food and he falls asleep on a train and he ends up in a city called Calcutta. 17 million people. He's in the countryside, train goes to Calcutta, he gets off, he's four years old, he can't, he, he lives in the street, he eats refuse. Finally somebody sees him and takes him to an orphanage. He can't, he can't doesn't, doesn't read or write, doesn't know the name of his mom or his brother or where he came from. And so after a few months, a family in Australia adopts him. You see, the movie shows, if you've ever been to Calcutta, Calcutta, wonderful people, beautiful people, but it's 17 million people in a very small landmass with poverty and wealth or, or, and, and, and filth and animals in the street and dusty, humid. It's, it's tough. But they go from Calcutta to Australia, and his new mom and dad live on the beach in this glorious bay surrounded by beautiful trees. And the contrast between Calcutta and this Bayside Resort in Australia is mind-boggling. Because I thought, saw the movie and it was a good movie. I said, the difference between the most beautiful place here and the glories of heaven is infinitely greater. And I need to think about that, to glory in that. Because if I do that, I can rejoice in the difficulties of life. I can rejoice in what God is doing. I can rejoice and be very glad. And the fourth reason I can rejoice, and this is what's endemic to the text, I can rejoice because of what Paul says in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. That's one of the most phenomenal, disconcerting verses in the Bible. See, if you're in Jesus, you're complete. You are saved, you're justified, you're, you're in Christ. No one can snatch you from the Father's hand. And yet Paul says here, that I believe what he's saying is from generation to generation there are sufferings that must be borne by the people of God to advance the gospel. And you and I are called to at times a life of faithfulness that can lead to suffering. Now again, if, if I were preaching this in Algeria or Libya or Morocco or Tunisia or Iraq, or Syria, it would have a different spin on it. These brothers and sisters are paying for it with their lifeblood. And just hear this, there have been, there's been a greater response to the gospel in the last 15 years in the Muslim community than in the previous 15 centuries. You, you won't hear that on BBC or Fox or CNN. And it's because men and women are faithfully taking the gospel out at times at the expense of their lives. But in our context, let me say this, there are, there, there are sufferings to be borne by men and women as they embrace the yoke of their calling that will speak of Christ to the generations behind them. Men and women who live with biblical fidelity as unto the Lord. 
as we live out our calling, we go without certain things to advance the kingdom financially. We go without sleep sometimes to pray and fast for one another. And see, the issue is I ask myself, what am I going without to fulfill my calling to advance the kingdom of God in this life, in this culture? How am I doing it? It's a joy to know you people. And I can look around this room and walk the halls and I can point to different people who have lived faithfully in difficult times as under the Lord. And in that regard, they're filling up in their flesh the sufferings that this generation needs to see for the glory and advancement of the kingdom. There are people that I know in this church that are in a difficult marriage. And they're faithful, they're gracious to their covenant marriage. They're there, and it speaks volumes to those around them. There are parents here who have joyfully embraced the pain of raising a child that has broken their hearts. Let me just say this. If you're contemplating getting married or getting married and you don't want to have your heart broken, do not have children. (laughs) Let me also say this. If you are married and you're a believer and you've chosen to not have children, repent and get pregnant this afternoon. (laughs) I'm, I'm quite serious. This stuff about we don't want to bring a child in. The Bible says be fruitful and multiply. Raise godly children by God's grace. But I'm telling you, if you don't have your heart broken, don't get involved with people. Because to be involved with people is to have your heart broken. But as you walk and as you love and as you serve and as you go the second mile and as you give, you're filling up in your flesh. I mean, just this gives your life incredible significance. You're filling up in your flesh what is lacking in regard to this generation seeing the reality of Jesus. It's an amazing thought, and it gives nobility to my life. So I'm going through this text. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it, and I'll tell you a story. So... Um, Years ago, years and years ago, there was a young man that lived with us. He was a civil cadet. Uh, he became part of our family. He was at our house most Sunday afternoons for three years. He spent two summers living with us, I think, two summers. Um, he was a son to me. He met a wonderful young woman in our church, in our college department. They were married. Um, he became a believer going to our church. I, I, I ministered to him and mentored him, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he ended up going to seminary. Felt God was calling him to be a pastor. And he went through seminary, did great, good mind. Uh, would call me almost weekly, check in. This is what I'm learning. Um, became a pastor. Had a good ministry for several years. And then he moved about three hours from here so I could spend time with him. A real man of prayer. A real man of prayer. And um, didn't hear from him for a few months, which is unusual. And 
Then I found out after he and his wife had, had three children, beautiful children, be beautiful children, that he had uh, abandoned his wife and left his children and was in an adulterous relationship with a woman. And I, I called him and he, he answered the phone the first couple of times. I, I pled with him, begged him, and then he no longer answered my phone calls. Uh, to this day, this is 15 years ago, he has not repented. It broke my heart. And so this week I'm going through this sermon, thinking about it, and I periodically call his former wife and, and we talk and she's so kind and the boys are, are growing up in college, two of them are in college. And she's been faithful unto the Lord and caring and gracious and she's represented Jesus before her boys in a way that's been real and deep and tangible. And church, she is filling up in her body the afflictions that is lacking in this generation in the name of Jesus for her boys. And I hung up and I sat there and I wept. And I thought, damn you to hell, Satan. And I thought to myself, hate sin, love Jesus, because I'm keenly aware of 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, the apostle Paul who started all these churches and written these letters and done all this stuff, he is the apostle Paul. He writes, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I won't be disqualified. And I thought to myself, self, do not forget, you can be disqualified. You can blow it. So hate sin, love the cross, rejoice in the goodness of Christ. And, and as you live, as you do that, you, know, you, you, you live in such a way that you fill up in your flesh, brothers and sisters, what is lacking for this generation. The question is, what am I doing to represent Jesus to this generation? If you're a believer, I'm not talking to non-believers, obviously. If you're, what are you doing to represent Jesus to this generation? If, if I'm living in that way, I can rejoice. I can rejoice. It's, it is an incredibly high calling, which brings us to Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, Paul's in a Roman's prison, and, and the church of Philippi has sent him a gift. This is what he says. Let me just read it. He, he says, Epaphrodites, the pastor of the church, was ill and he was near death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him. In the Lord and with all joy and honor, such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. It was amazing. Paul says that there was something lacking in your service to me and it's been fulfilled in Epaphroditus. I'm going, wow. 
I, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. You've been called into fellowship with the Lord. The yoke of Christ is upon you. Your life has significance. What you do counts for the Lord. Live that way. Let's, let, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this incredible passage that is simultaneously disturbing and encouraging. Thank you that in your kind and mercy, merciful providence, you use men and women. Thank you that in our generation there are sufferings to, get, to go through, to fill up what is lacking in others seeing Jesus. Thank you that there are sufferings in, in this culture that involves maybe being rejected or passed over or mocked, um, excluded, some of these things. But Lord, let, let us do that which is honoring to you. We pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord, in Syria and in Iraq and Libya and Algeria and China and North Korea where they, their sufferings involves imprisonments and beatings and torture and the shedding of blood. I pray we'd have the courage and the resolution of the Ten Boom Sisters who could link arms and march into Ravensbrück singing, Lead on, O Kindly Light. So, so do that. And we thank you for this day. And thank you that it's also an opportunity to see and know and embrace high school seniors. Guard them, O Lord. Empower them. Make Jesus rich in their lives, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.